Hello, Sing 22. This is David Mathis coming to you from Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I'm one of the pastors and where we have some construction and renovations going on. So welcome into that. I am especially excited to talk to you today as fellow pastors, as worship leaders, as ministers of music, as soloists, as instrumentalists, about one of the most practical and important topics that I think we could discuss today. For one, in talking about the secret liturgies of spiritual leaders, we are talking about a timeless topic. This is relevant in every generation. It has been for decades, it has been for centuries, so it's timeless. For another, this is a crucial topic. You cannot minister well to others for long without some relative health and life in your own soul. And so the Apostle Paul said to his sidekick Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself, that is, in private, in secret. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And Paul said to the elders, the pastors in Ephesus in Acts 20.28, keep a watch on yourselves, that is, in private, in secret, as well as on the whole flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So this is a timeless topic, secret liturgies, and it's crucial, and it's also very timely in our day. The age of accelerations in which we live, according to columnist Thomas Friedman, who says that in the age of acceleration, some of us just need permission to slow down. Here's what Friedman says. The pace of technology and scientific change outstrips the speed with which human beings and societies can usually adapt. We are living through one of the greatest inflection points in history, perhaps unequaled since Gutenberg, he says. A German blacksmith and printer launched the printing revolution in Europe, paving the way for the Reformation. And some of you may know the name Dallas Willard from our own generation. He died in 2013. And not long before he died, he said, the greatest enemy of spiritual life in our day is hurry. So for these reasons and more, I'm excited to address you on this topic of the secret liturgies of spiritual leaders and focus very practically on what we might call the private worship behind the public worship leader. And I'm especially excited to address this topic with you because you music people, you song people, you worship leaders, you are familiar with that one little word that so many today don't understand very well. It's in our hymn books, it's in our sheet music. The little word is repeat. Do you know, as music people, you know the power of repetition. Of all people, you're aware of this, whether you can explain it or not. And there's a lot of people in our day, a lot of congregants who are miffed by this idea of repetition. We are so used to new information in the information age, recent new content, new thoughts, new data. Why reread what we've already read? Why rehearse what we've already heard? Why re-sing something we've already sung? Well, there's power in repetition, even if we are conditioned to new information like never before. Do we know what this unprecedented new wave of information is doing for us in our age? The indication so far is that it's making us shallower 
not more deep, not wiser, not more mature, running our eyes across a page quickly, our words through our mouths in a song is not the same as experiencing the reality, the truth, the concept in our hearts. Our hearts simply don't move as quickly as our eyes and our minds and sometimes our words, which makes worship of the living God, both in public and in secret, in private, such an important remedy for what ails us today. We are a generation starved for worship. We are a generation shriveling because of our lack of true worship. Take Psalm 136, which many of you know well, as an example of the power of repetition. The Psalm is 26 verses. And each verse ends with, for his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. It rehearses God's goodness and supremacy, his wonder working, his world creating, his delivery of his people from slavery, his provision of a rich land for his people. And then that goes again, his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times the Psalm repeats this refrain and not one of them is wasted. With each new verse, another attribute of our God is celebrated or a rescue of his people is celebrated. And then our souls are ushered deeper into that reality with every repetition of the refrain, his steadfast love endures forever. The goal of the song and the goal of the repetition is not to make God's steadfast love old and boring. Just the opposite. The goal is to make it fresh, to make it live, to give it new depth in the human heart. The dance of each new verse and each return to the refrain is designed to bore the truth deeper into the human heart, that God's resilient love would be tasted, would be sensed, would be experienced by those who are giving themselves to the refrain. The Psalm, Psalm 136, is not a treatise on the unwavering, persistent love of God. It is a meditation on the love of God. It is less linear, it's more circular, or we might even say spiral. It is crafted to help augur the reality deeper into the human heart, to get it from the mental surface down into the affections, down into the deepest part of us. But again, our task in this session is to focus very practically on the private worship of the public worship leader. So let me take you to Deuteronomy 17, a passage I find very helpful in my leadership as a pastor, I hope you will as well in your music leadership, and discuss the secret liturgies of those who lead public liturgies for the gathering of God's people. Long before Israel had a king, as you may know, the nation's first and greatest prophet left specific instructions for that first king when he would come generations later, including where and how he would find his bearings daily to lead God's people. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, this is verses 14 to 20, Moses describes a concession 
that God would make one day for his people in setting a human king over them. As he does, he warns such kings about the dangers of excessive silver and gold and about having many wives and about trying to acquire many horses. So that is money, sex, and power. Some things never change. Moses also gives these specific instructions, he says, lest his heart turn away. It's very important. This is where the point of departure will be, humanly speaking, for regimes and dynasties and generations, the heart of the leader. So let me read to you verses 14 to 17 of Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. So, we might say, as the leader's heart goes, so goes the leader. And so goes the people. Will he heed the siren calls all around him and the subtle temptations to compromise with the acclaim and the special privilege he'll get? Will he just take advantage of willing and eager followers who want to give him benefit of the doubt? Will he slowly construct his own reality around him that serves his own private comforts rather than serves the holy interests of his followers? The battle lines Deuteronomy 17 is saying that the battle lines will first be drawn in the leader's own heart. Which explains why Moses' instructions turn where they do next, which may be unexpected. This may be a surprise for many where Moses goes next. What Moses writes next is all the more striking because this is issued generations before there's a king. It's not like the kingship was about to happen in a day, a week, a few years. This is generations, even centuries before Israel would have a king. When a king ascends to the throne in Israel with all the pomp and circumstance that will accompany such a coronation to the throne, as his first act, the king is to take a quill and to copy longhand for himself word for word, the copy of the book of the law to make his own copy of God's law and to read in it every day of his life, Moses says. Look at verses 18 to 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So note again the emphasis on the king's heart. God's plan for his leaders is that their hearts not turn away and that their hearts be formed and fed daily by God's word, that their hearts may not turn away. Consider then three aspects of this simple yet profound plan from God through Moses to the kings of Israel, just as relevant today for Christian leaders and for the church. Number one, the book shapes the leader. The book shapes the leader. This book copied longhand by the king for himself, get this, is not a journal. This is not a place for him to record his thoughts, his feelings, his preferences, even his decrees. This is not that book. This is a book that he is copying word for word, stroke for stroke, God's own law, objective, fixed. It is not open to edits or adjustments. In fact, once he does his copying, it's supposed to be approved by the priest to guarantee that nothing has been added or omitted. In other words, the leader doesn't change this book, but this book shapes the leader. However great he may be in the sight of his people, the king fundamentally does not shape his world and his own kingdom as much as he is shaped by God through God's word in the official book. So the book shapes the leader. Number two, the book keeps the leader, which is especially relevant to us in our day of so many rise and fall stories. The book keeps the leader. God also designs it for that. As this leader is bombarded by the world of privileges and the temptations that leadership can bring, as the king keeps the words of God in the book, the book keeps the king. That is, keeps him from turning to the right or to the left, from turning from fear of God to fear of man, from faithfulness of God to the pursuit of his own private sinful pleasures. In shaping the king's heart, the book keeps him from the subtle daily migrations away from God that we all face. Which is why Moses mentions the inner man or the heart twice in this passage. The unseen heart of the king will come in time into expression in his life and in the life of the nation. Daily self-humbling of his own thoughts and feelings and preferences and desires before God's written objective word will create a whole trajectory of life that will be vastly different than if he comes from the daily perspective of pride and conceit. And the greater the leader, the greater the effect will be of humility or for pride, for good or for ill in his kingdom, in his place of leadership. So the book keeps the leader, as well as shapes them. And then thirdly, the book calls each morning. The king's hand-copied, 
priest approved book, Moses says, shall be with him all the days of his life. With him, that is nearby, constantly within reach. Having completed this great hand copying project, he is not to store the book away for future reference, but he's to make it functional, accessible, active in his reign. Increasingly, the book should be in him as he lingers over it on a daily basis. This this book, Moses says, is designed to be read in daily. And, And not the sort of reading that the pace and pixels of our modern life is shaping us to read. That is fast break, hurried, distracted reading with the words coming out of our heads almost as quick as they go into our heads. Rather, the kind of reading that God intends for his people is meditative. That is slow, unhurried, enjoyable, feeding on the text, reading at the pace of the text rather than the pace of the world, pondering God's words, rolling them around in the mind long enough that we might enjoy them in the heart. Such daily meditation on God's word is what God so memorably called Joshua to as Joshua took over as a successor for Moses. You'll know this from Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. And so too, generations later, when Israel finally had its king, Psalm 1 would celebrate the godly leader who delights in the law of the Lord and on the law he meditates day and night, Psalm 1-2. And that's not only for the king, that's for everyone in Israel. Verse 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. And so too, When the ultimate man, David's great heir, came among us, his shaping and keeping and wisdom to live and to lead grew out of his regular feeding on the words of his father. As he says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, Jesus's intimate acquaintance with scripture did not come magically from heaven during the period of his public ministry. It was grounded, no doubt, on his early education, but nourished by long years of personal meditation. That's my hope for myself, for you who are watching this, that you, like Jesus, would be nourished by long years of personal meditation. Jesus' father appointed means for his stability in his truly human life. And it was not some extraordinary means or some magic trick. It was the same great and modest, amazing and ordinary daily means that was heralded by Moses and tested by Joshua and celebrated by David and imitable in the godly today. Daily meditation on the very words of God. So let's say more about meditation in the rest of our time together.
And it is an increasingly lost art in our day. Now, there are non-Christian forms of meditation. As you may know, that may be the most common usage of the term today. And so we think about unbiblical concepts often when we hear the language of meditation because of non-Christian forms of meditation, which largely seek to empty the mind and transcend concrete specifics into the ethereal and experience some form of meaningless enlightenment. But Christian meditation is different and even opposite. Christian meditation seeks to fill the mind with biblical content and chew on that content and try to get an appropriate sense of that content on the heart. That it not just come in and out of the head, but that the heart, the inner man, the affections experience the reality of that content. That's Christian meditation. Unlike mere reading, even slow reading, where our minds and our eyes keep moving, meditation slows us down. It slows us way down. We pause and we ponder in meditation. Reading keeps us marching on in a linear fashion, while meditation moves us more into a spiral pattern to go deeper. It limits the set of information and seeks to press that and apply that into our hearts to actually experience the truth that we're reading about. And not just let it run through us, but go into the heart and be lodged in us. As worship leaders, as music leaders, one thing you know well is that remarkable aspect of corporate worship that is meditation together. For one, it's what happens in many good sermons. The pinnacle of a good sermon is often a kind of corporate meditation where the preacher is leading the congregation at the height of the sermon, not in new information, but in circling around, in enjoying, in re-saying, in retelling the good news at the very height of the sermon. And the summits of our best praises together in song are essentially meditative. Returning to the refrain, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's not the discovery and delivery of some obscure stanza that binds our hearts and draws us together toward heaven, but it's the returning to the refrain. And now as we come back to the refrain, we have fresh content in view from the verses. And as we do, the refrain bores that truth even deeper into our hearts. The verses and the refrain together help us know the reality even better as we collectively digest the truth of God from our heads to our hearts to change our lives. The verses and the refrain together help us actually experience and be affected by the truth in our inner person and not just rehearse the data on the surface. But we need to say more about secret meditation, not just the public meditation of corporate worship, but the secret meditation, the private worship of the worship leader. Meditation involves a process. Meditation is not something you just switch on and off like a switch. Don't say, I'm gonna meditate right now and immediately start meditating. There's a process. There's a, a moving into it and a moving out of it. There's a leading up to it and a follow-up with meditation. Now, biblically, there are two main kinds of meditation. One is spontaneous. It's the kind of meditation that, that almost just happens to us as we go on through our day. 
like Psalm 19, verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. It could be meditation during the day. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Or Psalm 63.6 speaks of remembering God and meditating on him in the watches of the night. But another kind of meditation, in addition to spontaneous, is we might say deliberate or focused or intentional meditation. And that is largely guided by God's words. Genesis 24 talks about Isaac going out in the field at night to meditate. This seems to be intentional, deliberate. He's going out in the field to meditate. Or, as we saw in Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from you. You shall meditate on it day and night. Psalm 1 verse 2, as we saw, delight in the law of the Lord. On his law, meditate day and night. Psalm 119.48, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments which I love and I will meditate on your statutes. That's guided by God's word. Or Psalm 119, 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. So this deliberate, focused meditation is often guided by revelation from God in his word. And while the New Testament may not use that same language of meditation, the concept is clearly there. The language in the New Testament is setting the mind or fixing the mind, like in Matthew 16, in Mark 8, as Jesus talks to Peter, Romans 8, setting our minds on the spirit versus the flesh, Philippians 3.19, most significant, Colossians 3.2, set your minds on the things that are above, not things on the earth. That's the language of deliberate or focused meditation. And these two kinds of meditation, the spontaneous meditation of human life, and the focused or deliberate meditation have a certain relationship to each other. One leads to the other. In particular, our focused, deliberate meditation leads to what will be our spontaneous, unplanned meditation in those moments of our lives. So what we choose to meditate on in focused, deliberate moments, we will gravitate toward meditating on in the spare moments of our lives. But our focus here is on the focused meditation, the intentional meditation, the deliberate. So having made time for such meditation and having found an undistracting place to do such meditation, how might you go about pursuing it? Let me give you three Ps as we finish out our time for intentionally focusing, for pursuing meditation in your life. The first P is pace. And by that, I mean read at the pace of the biblical text. If you're going to meditate, you need a copy of Scripture. And you want to engage that copy at the pace of the biblical text, at a pace that would help understanding, at a pace that would help enjoyment. And for most of us, this is a slower pace, even even I would say a far slower pace than most of our reading. And it includes a lot of rereading because at the first pass, we don't get the understanding. So we reread at that slower pace. And this is different than the age of accelerations and our society is conditioning us to read. The Bible is not a modern book produced quickly, printed quickly, distributed quickly. The Bible is an ancient book. 
And in ancient days, books were produced carefully and slowly and copied hand by hand and distributed slowly and meant to be read and reread and meditated on and reflected on and engaged carefully, unlike many of our printed modern words. And so we begin at a pace with an unhurried, even leisurely, we would say, reading of scripture. That's pace. Second then, pause. And this is, this is meditation proper. It's a pause. It's a stop from moving through the text onto new text and lingering over, meditating in what text you have read and reread that's before you. Having read the biblical text, you now pause over it. You don't move on, but you seek to go deep in that concept, that phrase, that verse, that paragraph. We not only want to have God's word in us, in meditation, we want to be in the word, so to speak, that we linger over it long enough to get it from the inside, to understand it and feel the intended effect of the author and of God on us. So consider that under the second point, pace, pause, under pause, consider three encouragements about meditation. And I hope these will be practical for you as you seek to learn meditation or are encouraged in your own meditation uh, through our time here today. The first one is God made us to meditate. Just like he made humans to walk. You don't need very detailed instructions about walking. The legs can kind of do that naturally in most cases. And so it is with meditation. This should be encouraging to us. We don't need to go through a long course. God made us as humans to meditate and you can learn meditation through doing it, through setting aside the time and doing what many things that come natural for you as humans in engaging with the text in a slow, unhurried way. He made us for meditation. And God also made us for new mercies daily. If you find yourself waking up in the morning and wanting something fresh, wanting something new, wanting some fresh grace from God, that's not necessarily sin. That's from God. He means to meet you in fresh ways each morning. And he means to do that through his word, by the power of his spirit, in a way that you would engage in meditating on his word. So God made us to meditate. And you should be encouraged with that in trying to learn meditation. A second way, second encouragement, is that meditation forms and shapes us. We've already talked about this. But we should underline it again, how meditation changes us. We will meditate. You're going to meditate on something spontaneously. The question is, where? Where is your mind going to run? You're going to run to sports, to your own image, your physique, job, money, children, politics, anxiety in society, News, what continually captures your attention throughout the day? What's your spontaneous meditation? That will shape you. Whatever you meditate on, whatever your mind gravitates to, it is shaping you and will continue to shape you. And especially what you choose to meditate on, or we might say click to meditate on. What you meditate on will reform your desires, will shape 
your desires. And Christian meditation means to set and reset your desires and your frame of mind and your heart on the most important realities in the universe. Third then, biblical meditation seeks joy in God today, right now. So not just the forming and shaping of meditation for some future benefit. Meditation seeks joy in God right now, today. Not just long-term formation. It aims to warm the heart, to stir the affections, to satisfy our souls right now in who they were made to be satisfied in, namely God through Jesus Christ. Let me give you four examples from Puritan pastors in the 17th century. So to go back to the master meditators, which it's such a lost art today, We go back to the Puritans. I go back to the 17th century. And I got four quotes in particular from Puritans that help me think about what I'm pursuing as I linger over God's word in the morning. First one is Thomas Watson, born in 1620. He said, study is finding out of a truth. Meditation is the spiritual improvement of a truth. Get get this distinction, it's very important. Our goal in Bible study, our goal in engaging God's Word in Bible intake is not just to study and to understand in the mind, but meditation seeks to spiritually improve a truth, or we might say apply it to the heart, sense it on the heart, taste it on the heart, which leads to a second quote here by Samuel Ward, born in 1577. Some old language here. He says, stir up thy soul in meditation to converse with Christ. Look what promises and privileges thou dost habitually believe. Now, actually think of them. Roll them under thy tongue. Chew on them till thou feel some sweetness in the palate of thy soul. So he's saying, take the truths you've heard. You've read these before. You've heard these promises before. You believe them, you say. And now actually consider them. Roll them around on the tongue of your mind and your heart. Such a helpful image. Do that until you taste some sweetness. Very important word. Some sweetness. This is what we're after in meditation. Not mere understanding. We want to taste sweetness with our souls. We want to see and experience and taste the goodness of God in his sweetness for our soul. Pursue sweetness in your meditation, which leads to a third quote. This is Edmund Calamy, born in 1600. He says, in meditation, be like the honeybee that dwells and abides upon the flower to suck out all the sweetness. There's that word sweetness again. This is what you're doing. As you meditate on a phrase, on a verse, on a biblical paragraph, you're like a honeybee trying to suck out all the sweetness. I want to see God in his goodness, in his sweetness. I want to experience it and taste it. God, would you help me by your spirit as I look upon your word and look for your sweetness. And then finally, this often requires persistence. It doesn't just come in a moment. Sometimes God gives gifts that come in a moment. A first reading through the text, you light on something, you stay there, you taste sweetness. But often it requires some persistence. 
some lingering over the text, rereading the text, thinking about the text, praying for help. And William Bates, born in 1625, said this, meditate till thou dost find some sensible benefit conveyed to thy soul. This is helpful in terms of the time frame, in terms of what we're seeking. As we come over a text, over a word, over a verse, we want to obtain some sensible benefit for our souls, some sensible benefit that would help us in Christ, strengthen our faith, inspire us for the day ahead, and direct our lives. In other words, don't let him go till he blesses you. <laughs> Keep at it, Bates says, till the flame doth so ascend. So keep working on the bonfire until the flame comes up. Practically then, what kind of time frame might this take? Whether you're renewing your sense of meditation, whether you're gonna try this for the first time, to meditate on God's word, what kind of time frame would you wanna start with? Let me suggest this. I would say for beginners, to set aside about a half an hour. And as you become more familiar with the art of meditation, of lingering over God's word, of going deep, tasting it, of praying it, I think the time will naturally grow. You'll find it more enjoyable to have more space and time. You'll soon find yourself wanting to do it for longer, maybe even extend that toward an hour. But that would be a very practical way to go about it for you if you're thinking about that is a starter. So moving toward meditation then, back to our P's, moving toward meditation involves a certain pace, and that is the unhurried reading of the biblical text. And then meditation means pausing. This is meditation proper, going deep in, asking questions of, taking time to make connections and find insights. And then a final P, meditation leads to prayer. Prayer to God is the proper issue, the proper completion of the process of meditating on God through his word. We hear from him in scripture. We linger over, meditate on what he said in scripture so that we hear it all the way down in our souls and then we speak back to him in prayer. The way I like to say it is this, this is how I pursue it. Begin with Bible, move to meditation, polish with prayer. Begin with Bible, move to meditation, polish with prayer. And my encouragement is that once you have meditated on a verse, on a phrase, on a biblical concept for several minutes, turn it into prayer. Rather than now pivoting from the text to a list to pray, pray for yourself, your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, your church, through what you've heard and meditated on in that text. Let that text be God's word to you and pray in response to it now as you respond in prayer. So, pace, pause, prayer, and if I could give you one more P to end with, it'd be person. That's Jesus. Bible reading is not just reading. It is God's appointed medium in this age by his spirit for knowing and enjoying our God through Jesus Christ. So remember in meditation, seek to enjoy the risen, 
living Christ by his spirit, through his word. Seek soul satisfaction in him. Many of us expect far too little in our Bible reading and our prayer. Christ is alive. He is seated on heaven's throne. He has given us his word and given us his spirit to make his word come alive to us as a living word today for us, from him to us, to meditate on and respond in prayer. We are not just reading a book. We are not just meditating on ancient words. We are meeting with a living divine person. Jesus is real and he's there. And we meet with him as we meditate on his word. So let me close like this by encouraging you to wake up each morning and to eat like a king. That is, take the prescription of Deuteronomy 17, take it to heart, and take the cues and commission of Joshua and the celebration of Psalm 1 and the life of David and the life of Jesus and linger in God's word. Steep your soul in some specific scripture Feed your soul on the words of your father. Come to the Bible not only to read and study, but to pause and to ponder. Come to meditate on God's word in an unhurried, even leisurely enjoying of God. And one last word in particular for those who are worship leaders and ministers of music and soloists and instrumentalists. Sing, sing. You know this better than most of us. You know the power of repetition. You know the power of music to slow down a soul so that the truth that's being sung can penetrate into the inner person. This is what music and song are for, for slowing us down, for auguring, soul-sustaining, life-giving truth deep down into the heart, for engaging our hearts, for shaping us, for sustaining us, for changing us, inspiring us, guiding us. So take your love of music and your gifting in music and put it to use in private, in secret, for the life and health of your soul in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. So Father in heaven, for those who have listened to this message, I pray now that you would grant clear direction in application. For those who are trying for the first time to not only read your word, but meditate on it, to linger in it, would you give much grace? By your spirit, would you lead them and guide them? Guide them with your words. Guide them in learning a lost art. And for those who are seeking to continue in what they have learned or tweak or grow in what they have learned. Would you give them much grace? Father, I I beg for the souls of those who would be leading in our liturgies who have heard this message that they would not be hollow, that their private lives would not be devoid of worship while they stand in public to try to lead worship. Father, I pray that we pastors, that we worship leaders would do our most worship, our best worship in secret before you, over your word, by the power of your spirit, enjoying your son. And then as an extension, as an effect, as an overflow, you would guide us in leading your people faithfully 
in our public liturgies together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.